and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a discussion on possible strategies to prevent a war in Ukraine while building constructive relations with Russia into the future, and speak with David Kramer, who serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute. Previously, he worked in Washington, D.C. for 24 years, including as Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, President of Freedom House and Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He served eight years in the United States Department of State during the George W. Bush administration, including as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he was responsible for Russia, Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus, and as a staff member of the Secretary's Office of Policy Planning and a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Global Affairs. The author of Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime. He is a co-author of a strategy paper at the Atlantic Council, Global Strategy 2022, Thwarting Kremlin Aggression Today for Constructive Relations Tomorrow. Then we look into some good news with the House passage of a bill that will relieve an enormous financial burden on the post office, which will enable the U.S. Postal Service to function properly and speak with Christopher Shaw, an author, historian, and policy analyst who is the author of Preserving the People's Post Office, Money, Power, and the People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic, and most recently, First Class, the U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. He joins us to discuss moves to get rid of the Trump-appointed Postmaster General and reverse his $11.3 billion order of 165,000 gasoline-powered delivery trucks that get 8.2 miles per gallon at a time Amazon is ordering 100,000 electric vehicles. Then finally, we'll examine some more good news, which unfortunately for President Biden is not getting through to the American public, and that is how good the economy actually is and how an expected raising of interest rates by the Fed will reverse the gains that working and middle-class Americans are enjoying. Joining us is Zachary Carter, a writer-in-residence at the Omidyar Network's Reimagining Capitalism Initiative, who spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. The author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, we will discuss his article at The Atlantic, The Economy is Good, actually. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now, David Kramer, who serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute. Previously, he worked in Washington, D.C. for 24 years, including as Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, President of Freedom House, and Senior Transatlantic Fellow 
at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He served eight years in the U.S. Department of State during the George W. Bush administration, including as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he was responsible for Russia, Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus, and as a staff member on the Secretary's Office of Policy Planning and the Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary of Global Affairs. He's the author of Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime, and he is a co-author of a strategy paper at the Atlantic Council, Global Strategy 2022, Thwarting Criminal Aggression Today for Constructive Relations Tomorrow. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Kramer. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us. And one of the suggestions you have is of in the Global Strategy 2022 paper is that you feel that a high-level special envoy should be appointed by the Biden administration to deal with the standoff over Ukraine and NATO. You recommend Kurt Volker, but given the flurry of people, the world leaders that have been at, rotating through the Kremlin lately at the end of that long table, I'm wondering whether somebody of the stature of a George W. Bush might be necessary. Well, uh, first of all, uh, the, the report, as you might imagine, was written a little while ago, but it certainly factored in the latest developments that had been occurring occurring along the Russia-Ukraine border with the threatening buildup of Russian forces um, inside Russia, but also in occupied Crimea. And the idea of an envoy, we weren't necessarily recommending that Kurt come back into that role. I don't think that was a possibility, but that the Biden administration appoints someone who could have been the point person for this. I do think that recent developments have overtaken that uh, recommendation. And uh, I'm not sure uh, who would be the best person um, to fulfill that kind of role. As you indicated, we've just seen uh, French President Macron in in Moscow uh, meeting with Putin. Uh, We will see before too long German Chancellor Schultz there. Um, uh, Of course, Hungarian Prime Minister Orban was there, but I don't think that was terribly helpful in resolving this this situation. Um, And President Biden, of course, has been very engaged on this himself. So uh, we have seen an elevation of attention um, from the Biden administration to this issue. And so the special envoy recommendation perhaps has been overtaken by events, as we say. But given that when now there are reports that the top Russian generals are now in Belarus conducting a joint exercise that ends, I believe, at the end of the month, and also the Olympics in Beijing, the Winter Olympics, I think, end around the 20th. President Biden himself has floated the notion that he thinks there could be a war, a war could break out at the end of the month or in this month. Obviously, it won't break out before the Schultz visit on the 15th. And do you think that there's a possibility that this exercise going on in Belarus could be a springboard for a real attack? The, the exercise in Belarus is supposed to end the same day that the Beijing Olympics end, February 20th. And I think there is great concern uh, about uh, what the exercise could lead to. The estimates are that there will be some 30,000 Russian forces participating in this exercise with Belarus. But making it more difficult has been the rhetoric coming from the illegitimate leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, who has indicated that he will 
clearly side with Putin and Russia in any conflict that might break out. Of course, we have to keep in mind that any any fighting or conflict that occurs would be uh, solely on uh, Russians, on the on the, on Putin's shoulders. He would bear full responsibility for this because Ukraine hasn't done anything that has uh, merited any any reaction from from Moscow. Um, and, and so I think the concern is that after these exercises, that may be the time again before the ground thaws. Uh, there's talk about the terrain, what would be most conducive for tanks and other equipment to roll across the border. The only thing I would add, though, Ian, is is there are gradations between doing nothing, Putin's doing nothing, and Putin's ordering in the entire Russian military to take over Ukraine. There are cyber attacks. There are uh, ways of weaponizing energy, uh, disinformation campaigns. It could be a limited incursion into the Donbass region or elsewhere. So there, there are many gradations that we have to think about short of full on invasion, but a full-on invasion, unfortunately, cannot be ruled out either. Well, there's an extraordinary post on a website on January the 31st from the chairman of the All-Russian Officers' Assembly, retired General Colonel Leonid Ivashov, and he said, Mm -hmm. we Russian officers demand that the president of the Russian Federation reject the criminal policy of provoking a war in which Russia would be alone against the United Forces of the West, and he went on to say, and retire. So that is amazing, don't you think, that call? It is. I mean, the, the reaction commentary to this has been a little bit all over the map. Um, what has been perhaps most striking is that Ivashov's call and criticism of Putin, and, and as you said, his call for Putin to resign, has stayed up on the website in which he posted it. He's even given an interview to Echo Moskvi. So uh, usually something like this, the Kremlin would move rather quickly to shut it down, take it off the web, no longer make it available to people. But it still is. And that, I think, is perhaps as striking as anything. Ivashov has been a critic of Putin's for quite a long time. He's a Russian nationalist. Uh, he's been associated in the past with Alexander Dugin and others. Um, it's not clear what influence he will have on current or retired military officers in Russia. Um, but it also uh, came at the same time that there was an open letter signed by, I think, roughly 100 or more uh, Russian intellectual elites who have criticized the possibility of a a Russian renewed attack against Ukraine. It it suggests that there is criticism and and opposition against what Putin might have in mind. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure it will matter. The the decision on what to do, if anything, is going to lie with Putin himself. And I don't think we have seen much evidence to indicate that active current uh, Russian military officers are offering any resistance to what Putin has proposed so far. And again, I'm speaking with David Kramer, who serves as the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute. Previously, he worked in Washington, D.C. for 24 years, including as Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, President of Freedom House, and Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He is a co-author of a strategy paper at the Atlantic Council, Global Strategy 2022, Thwarting Kremlin Aggression Today for Constructive Relations Tomorrow. And do you share the belief that was expressed in a recent New York Times article that the three top advisors that 
Putin has with the former head of the FSB, the head of the National Security Council, Nikolai Petrushev, and then the head of the SVR, along with the Defense Minister Shoigu, are also giving, <laughs> unlike General Colonel Leonid Ivashov, they're giving pretty hawkish advice, are they not? Yes, I mean, uh, you, you, yes, Patrushev, Narishkin, uh, Shoigu, Bortnikov, uh, the, these are sort of the hardline hawks in, in, in Russian security services and in the military. Um, there are no indications that, that I've seen or that are publicly available that indicate that they are trying to hold Putin back. In fact, they may be uh, urging him on, egging him on, if you will, um, to take some decisive measures. Um, of course, we have to keep in mind that Putin himself posted a nearly 7,000-word screed uh, that essentially questioned Ukraine's existence as an independent state, said it was essentially part of Russia, um, and, and uh, that was posted on the Kremlin website in July. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who's the deputy of the Russian National Security Council, launched a, a follow-on attack against Ukraine. Uh, we see a lot of the rhetoric and commentary coming from top officials in line with uh, Putin's general uh, thinking about the situation. So, again, I think with people who are in positions that matter, who who are influencers, if you will, um, it's a very small circle. Uh, Putin is the decision maker there. And I, I'm not uh, I certainly don't see any signs that he's getting any pushback or resistance. But the irony or the inconsistency is with that long essay that he wrote. He referred often to the Ukrainian and Russian people as one and the same. We are part of the whole. So, you know, in effect, if he goes to war, he's killing his own people. You're absolutely right. No, I think you, you put your finger on it, which is that he, um, as you said, he considers them one. But then in, in Russia, attitudes toward Ukraine are quite positive. A uh, recent Lavada survey indicated that most Russians, or a, a slight majority, blame the West, blame NATO for the current situation, um, not not Ukraine. Uh, but only about 16% blame Ukraine. So I think um, there would be a lot of questions that Russians would have. Why are we attacking Ukraine? Uh, a people that their Russian leader, Russia's leaders, has said are one and the same. Uh, so I think absolutely right. You you put your finger on something that Putin will have a little difficulty explaining. Putin has talked about how Ukrainian authorities are committing genocide against ethnic Russians or Russian speakers. That is a line he has used before um, when attacking other countries like Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014. Um, and so some of that rhetoric does raise concerns that he is getting serious about this. But he has not laid out, I would argue, a clear articulation or justification for why Russia would move militarily against Ukraine. Zelensky, I think, President Zelensky of Ukraine has been very careful about not falling for any provocations, like we saw in the case of Georgia in 2008. And uh, I think what another irony is that Putin has been criticizing uh, NATO beefing up its military presence in the region, but it's because of Russian actions that have led to more U.S. troops being sent to the area, uh, an increase in NATO uh, forces in countries like Poland and the Baltic states, um, and countries seeking NATO membership. Why are they seeking NATO membership? Because they worry about Russian revanchism and aggression. 
And so Putin, in some respects, is producing the very scenario that he claims he is against. And the Levada poll that you mentioned, the support for the United States in Russia is still 45%. That compared to only 12% in 2015. And in terms of the idea that there's this seething hatred towards Ukraine in Russia, 42% of Russians polled by Levada harbored a negative view of their neighbor, where 45% saw Ukraine positively. The real issue, though, or the real statistic would be the extent to which the Ukrainians, who always had a fraternal relationship with the Russians, now really do hate the Russians. And boy, if they invade. And in fact, Ivashov said, if we invade Ukraine, they will hate us for generations. You've put your finger on something which I think is extremely important. One is despite all the propaganda that comes out of Kremlin-controlled media, there there still is a a positive reservoir among Russians toward the West, toward the United States, um, that that, uh, didn't exist as much in 2015. There was much more rallying behind the flag in Russia with the illegal annexation of Crimea and even the operation into Donbass, but that's worn out. And I think since then, there is a growing sense of resignation, even frustration among many Russians, that Putin is there for the foreseeable future. He amended the Constitution, of course, in 2020 that could conceivably keep him in power until 2036. And I think for many Russians, that is not a hopeful outlook. But the other part of it, Ian, is that Putin has a terrible understanding of his neighbors. Um, he, he, He doesn't understand that by invading them, by threatening them, by shutting off energy to them in the middle of winter, by propping up unpopular, illegitimate leaders like he's doing in Belarus, um, he alienates the populations in these countries. The the reason that these people have the uh, responses in these surveys that you mentioned is because of of Putin's attitude and Putin's behavior and his actions. And so he, he repels the populations in these countries rather than wins them over with, if you will, soft power. Uh, And and so it it reflects, I think, a terrible understanding uh, that Putin has uh, of Ukraine, of of Moldova, Georgia, Belarus, et cetera. Yes, Lukashenko is still there only because of Russian support. But even in Belarus, uh, uh, Putin has turned a population that was arguably pro-Russian, at at worst neutral toward Russia, and has generated a lot of anti-Russian backlash. That's not in Russia's national interest. So why is Putin doing this? Because he is afraid to see like-minded leaders fall from power, and he is afraid to see a successful, vibrant, democratic Ukraine that looks more West rather than toward Russia as threatening alternatives to his corrupt authoritarian grip on power in Russia. So you mentioned soft power. Just in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about some of the soft power tools that the U.S. could use in particular to penetrate the wall of state propaganda. And that would involve, what, beefing up the Internet to give Russians alternative news? I mean, there are a number of proposals in uh, your Global Strategy 2022 thwarting Kremlin aggression today for constructive relations tomorrow. So let's run through them quickly if you can. Sure. I mean, part of it is is a, a proactive policy of supporting Internet freedom, which Russian authorities have been trying to, to rein in, not quite yet on a Chinese level, but um, Russian authorities have certainly been doing this. They've forced 
uh, Google and and Apple and others to um, uh, take down postings, say, by Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure whose foundation posted a lot of information about um, corrupt activities by Russian officials. Um, So we also need to support and help um, uh, American and international companies to stand up to this Russian pressure so that uh, campaigns like the smart voting that Navalny launched last fall ahead of the Duma elections are not removed from the internet um, just just weeks before the votes are cast um, in an election that that was completely rigged beforehand. Um, It means supporting journalists, um, Russian journalists uh, and others. This gets very tricky because any funding that comes from the West risks uh, exposing these individuals to being labeled as foreign agents and making their jobs very difficult. But there have been a lot of journalists, unfortunately, who have had to flee Russia, but want to stay in the business of reporting and investigating what's going on. And so doing that, I think, is is uh, very important to do. Um, and then uh, helping with anti-corruption efforts. Um, uh, Navalny's foundation, which has been deemed a terrorist and extremist organization, has done amazing work on this, but helping get the word out about the level of corruption that that we see exposing uh, Putin's own involvement in corruption, I think is important. Uh, Russians, I think, do understand and know that their leaders engage in corruption. They kind of write it off, but I think they could be uh, influenced by the degree to which um, uh, the the corruption uh, exists. And then there is the issue we mentioned in the report about what to do with Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, which has come under tremendous attack um, from Russian authorities. It has been fined more than $13 million for refusing to apply the foreign agent label on its material. Um, but the uh, big question is what to do with the Russian journalists, some 50 full-time and, and a number of, of freelancers uh, who work there, what to do with them. Obviously, their safety is a matter of great importance. But I think uh, RFERL's ability to report inside Russia uh, from Russia is is getting increasingly compromised. But they do amazing work. They need to be supported as well so that uh, we can help them get get news and information out to the Russian uh, viewers and audience. Well, David Kramer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David Kramer, who serves as a Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute, and previously he worked in Washington, D.C. for 24 years, including as Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy with the McCain Institute for International Leadership, President of Freedom House, and Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He is the co-author of a strategy paper at the Atlantic Council, Global Strategy 2022, thwarting Kremlin aggression today for constructive relations tomorrow. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the good news of a House passage of a bill that will relieve an enormous financial burden on the post office, enabling it to function properly. If you walk away, I'll walk away. First tell me which road you will take. Don't want to risk our paths crossing someday So you walk that way, I'll walk this way And And there's there's kids playing guns in the street And one's pointing his tree branch at me And so I put my hands up I say enough is enough 
If you walk away, I'll walk away. And he shot me dead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Shaw, an author, historian, and policy analyst who is the author of Preserving the People's Post Office, Money, Power, and People, The American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic, and most recently, First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Shaw. Good to be talking with you. Well, thanks, uh, Christopher. And back in the George uh, W. Bush administration, the Congress passed a crippling requirement on the post office that they had to prepay 75 years' worth of pensions. And this has resulted that in the fact that they've never been financially viable since then with this crippling debt hanging over them that they have to prepay. And it looks as if that albatross around their neck is being lifted here with the House today on a vote of 342 to 92 passed bipartisan legislation to remove that debt burden. So it's got to go to the Senate. What's your sense of how it will proceed? Because obviously Biden will sign it. So the majority leader, uh, Senator Schumer from New York, has said that he hopes to have a vote on it later this week. And I don't expect to see any changes in the Senate. Um, there's been no indication that will happen. So the House bill could be passed in the Senate. And the thing is, there's bipartisan support there. I believe there's 18 Republican co-sponsors in addition to the Democrats who support it. So this means that it seems likely to pass, although you never can't tell with the Senate, there could be some last minute uh, senator who pops up and wants to be obstructionist. But really all indicators are that this will get through the Senate, um, hopefully later this week. So has there then been a realization that these bills passed back in George W. Bush's administration by the Republicans haven't worked? Have they recognized? I mean, the, the assumption was that they were deliberately trying to cripple the post office in order to privatize it and have our mail delivered by UPS and Federal Express. Well, so this pre-funding uh, requirement that went into law in 2006 in a Republican uh, Congress, the idea here was that there was uh, had been a major overpayment into the uh, fund for uh, postal retirees in terms of their health care benefits. And uh, this had to do with the fact that the Treasury bonds that the funds were invested in had actually overperformed. The, the yields had been larger than expected. So if you were going to take this overpayment and return it to the Postal Service, that was going to increase the budget deficit. So this prepayment plan, which no other government agency uh, is, is required to do and no private corporation attempts to do, they try to generally pre-fund you know, a few years in advance for the retirees, not decades in advance to their, for the retirees, uh, with the Postal Service basically trying to pre-fund its retiree benefits for workers who aren't even employed there or maybe not even uh, born yet. So it was a really unusual uh, requirement. And um, it, as you said, it created a huge uh, financial uh, burden on the Postal Service. But uh, once this was realized what a problem it was, especially after the, the recession in 2008, when the economy uh, got worse and the Postal Service's finances uh, suffered as a result of that, there's just been a long educational campaign about the, the problem with this pre-funding requirement. Um, and so as a result, we're finally seeing uh, action taking to to remove it. Um, so it was put in there to try to uh, 
make it so the budget deficit wouldn't increase, but it ended up just being this huge uh, weight on the Postal Service uh, for many years. Well, one of the provisions in this bill that's passed to ease the Post Office Service's financial problems is simply to put the Postal Service retirees on Medicare. I mean, that seems like such a (laughs) no-brainer. Again, why have you put the Postal Service through all this torture when it's logical that they could all be on Medicare? Why not? Well, this is why there's been this uh, legislation that's coming up. It's been in the making for, I mean, a decade or or more. People have been talking about these kind of straightforward reforms, um, as you outlined. And um, so finally, at this point, it's uh, actually the leadership in Congress is uh, getting it up there for a vote and and making it happen. Um, But it's been been a long time coming, and it really should not have taken this long to do a lot of these common sense reforms that actually had bipartisan agreement. So this is good news for a change, Christopher. This is good news. This is definitely a, a step in the, in the right direction. I mean, it's, you know, when there's discussions about the post office, you're always just hearing about how it's uh, about to shut down almost. It's going to be bankrupt. A lot of the time people say in the media, which is not true, but this will remove uh, any reason for, for those kinds of uh, doom and gloom scenarios that make it seem like the post office is uh, coming to an end. Um, so that's uh, definitely a positive. And what it means is now, I think we can look forward uh, to the future more and, and what the post office uh, can look like and the ways it could be improved and evolve um, for the 21st century. And again, I'm speaking with Christopher Shaw, who's an author, historian, and policy analyst, who is the author of Preserving the People's Post Office, Money, Power, and the People, the American Struggle to Make Banking Democratic, and most recently, First Class, the U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. So let's talk about another issue involving the Postal Service, Chris, and that is there's a lot of criticism of the U.S. Postal Service. Of course, there's been a lot of criticism of Louis DeJoy, who was a big Trump donor, who has been made Postmaster General and has had a very controversial tenure. Many think that he's deliberately trying to wreck the uh, Postal Service and efforts to get rid of him have taken some time, but... um, his decision to spend $11.3 billion on a gas-powered fleet of Postal Service vehicles has definitely got the Biden administration upset because it obviously makes a mockery of their net-zero emissions plan by 2050. The point is, though, that the vehicles that they've chosen under a contract with the Oshkosh Corporation in Wisconsin, which is a defense contractor, first of all, the vehicles they've chosen their fuel efficiency will be about 8.2 miles per gallon, I mean, which is just appalling. And you're talking about 165,000 delivery, new delivery trucks. That's the biggest fleet in the world burning through all that gas at a time when Amazon have just contracted and ordered 100,000 electric vehicles from the electric vehicle company Rivian. So where do we stand on this? Another one of DeJoy's decisions, to say the least, is controversial. He's been very stubborn on this issue. Uh, He recently essentially said that unless he gets a procurement, uh, they're going to go ahead with this current contract. And the thing about the postal trucks is it's it's about uh, close to a third of the entire federal fleet. And 
Um, this is an ideal kind of truck for an electric vehicle because it does a lot of stopping, a lot of starting. Uh, the total distance that it uh, drives in a day is such that you could take it back to the post office at night and plug it in and charge it back up again. So it's really ideal for uh, helping out with the electrical vehicle industry in this country and also um, reducing those greenhouse gas emissions. And the Biden administration has uh, recently sent a letter uh, to Postmaster General DeJoy, and uh, the EPA pointed out that the uh, Postal Service, when it was making this decision to buy mostly uh, gasoline-powered trucks, it had underestimated the greenhouse gas emissions um, that they would produce. It also uh, had issues with the total cost that it said there would be to these um, trucks, and it had failed to consider alternatives, um, is what the EPA said. So it's possible that the EPA could uh, take this to litigation. Uh, that's one thing that's been talked about. There's uh, attorneys work for environmental organizations who've said they think the EPA has a, has a good case. Uh, so we'll see what happens with this. But uh, DeJoy has been very stubborn about it uh, so far. And then another uh, aspect of it as well is that uh, they're going to their plan right now is to assemble these trucks in uh, South Carolina with non-union workers, as opposed to the union workers in Wisconsin uh, that were originally uh, described as being the ones who would be uh, making these trucks. So that's another issue on top of the environmental uh, problem with this uh, idea of a continuing with the gasoline-powered fleet when the whole rest of the world is uh, hopefully moving towards electric vehicles. Well, you've made the point that the electric vehicles are, are more efficient and more suitable for the kind of stop-and-start routine of postal service deliveries. So what's going on with DeJoy then? Why is he making this boneheaded decision and being obstinate about it? You know, is there some kind of kickback or some kind of corruption here? Why would you want to go and buy a fleet of 165,000 new vehicles that only get 8.2 miles per gallon? It's outrageous. And the thing about this this fleet is that as more and more electric vehicles come on to the roads, it's just going to become more and more outdated, and the Postal Service will be saddled with it for years down the road. And also, the long-term maintenance costs to electric vehicles are lower than gasoline as well because there's less moving parts. So in, so in terms of a long-run decision, there's all kinds of problems here. Um, but what the... Post office under DeJoy is saying, the, the leadership there has said, is essentially uh, that it's cheaper right now. So the claim is it's, it's a very short-run focus that it's cheaper to, to go with gasoline-powered than electric vehicles at this moment in time. And if you want us to go with electric vehicles, then we want an appropriation uh, from, from Congress to do that. Well, but DeJoy is celebrating the, the vote in the Congress in removing this huge burden of prepaying 75 years in uh, terms of health and retirement benefits. So you can't have it both ways. I mean, if he's, if now this huge burden has been lifted from the Postal Service, which is what, they're going to save at least $10 billion, aren't they? They're going to save uh, tens of billions of dollars at least. I mean, the thing about this uh, pre-fine is it's uh, really, it's on the balance sheet, it's on the ledger, it's a it's a paper, you know, uh, accounting issue. So you get different figures, but it's a huge, huge number, probably approaching maybe as close to 100 billion. Um, but, but you're right. He still is interested in, um, at least he's, you know, his claim is we still are in the business of saving money, um, rather rather than 
and this is kind of the whole problem with them is you know, rather than an outlook of a public service and the way the postal service could be harnessed to promote a more sustainable future for us environmentally. Um, that's just not part of his calculus. So we don't know that he's just being pig headed or he's made some kind of sweetheart deal with the Oshkosh. We don't have, yeah, we don't have any, any information on that, mm-hmm. at least that I've, that I'm aware of. So then, it's not entirely clear that it can be stopped. You say the EPA will, will sue and maybe slow it down. The other alternative is to get rid of DeJoy, and the Democrats have been trying to do that for some time, haven't they? And um, my understanding is that uh, Biden has been able to appoint some Democrats to the Postal Board. Uh, that's the only way that you can get rid of this guy is for the majority of the Postal Service Board to fire him. But isn't Biden still waiting for confirmation from the Senate on some of his nominees? Right. So the only way they can uh, remove Postmaster General DeJoy is to have the, the Postal Board of Governors uh, vote to remove him and bring in someone else to be Postmaster General. And there's right now there's uh, five Trump nominees on the board, and then there's three Biden nominees. And the thing is that there's uh, two nominations that have been set up to the Senate. And the plan has been to hold off on those nominations until this uh, bill gets passed, which hopefully will happen very shortly. And then after that, they can turn to these new nominations. At that point, you'd have five Biden nominees on the board versus four Trump nominees on the board. But the thing about the Board of Governors is it has to be bipartisan. It has to have Democrats and Republicans. So in terms of the the partisan makeup of the board at that point, it would have uh, four Republicans, four Democrats, and then also one independent, uh, because one of these new nominees, um, Derek Kahn, uh, who Biden set up, uh, sent up to the Senate as a Republican. Um, so at that point, definitely you, you've gotten rid of um, the member of the Board of Governors, who is the one who picked up uh, DeJoy and put him forward for the postmaster general position in the first place. Um, so getting him out, that will be certainly uh, a good step. Uh, but given the breakdown then of who is on the board, it's not 100% sure exactly what decision they will make in terms of who they want to be postmaster general, even after uh, confirmation of these two new Biden nominees. So when uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island says that the Postal Service urgently needs a change of leadership, under Postmaster General DeJoy, the Postal Service is actively choosing to ignore science and the law in order to make sure one of the world's largest fleets of government vehicles continues to be a major source of pollution. Postmaster General DeJoy has messed around with our mail system for too long and he's caused real harm to the Americans who rely on it. This cannot continue. So is that call, I mean, it's obviously a partisan call, but are there any other Republicans in the Senate that are likely to join with Sheldon Whitehouse? I haven't heard anything on that level of criticism from uh, Senate Republicans to the DeJoy tenure. Um, There's actually been some grumbling about him for other reasons, one being that he green-lighted a pilot program to offer some basic, not exactly banking services, but uh, check-cashing services at a select uh, group of four post offices on the East Coast, and they weren't happy with that. But I do not see the Republicans coming out in the same way. I mean, for Democrats, they see Postmaster General DeJoy as a partisan figure, 
and um, Republicans are are not angered by that in anything close to the same way that a lot of Democrats on Capitol Hill have been. Well, as as I mentioned earlier, Chris, he was a huge donor to Trump. Trump put him on there, and one of the first things he did was to try and you know stripped out these sorting machines and tried to um, make it more difficult to vote by mail, which was so nakedly partisan. So, I mean, his record's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, he he comes out of the financing arm of the Republican Party. He was big backer of uh, Trump, donated something along the lines of a million dollars to Trump. And he was a partisan figure in a way that no postmaster general has been in decades, really. Back, you'd have to go back to the days when the president selected the postmaster general and they, they served on their in their cabinet. Um, so he has definitely cut a, a partisan uh, figure and brought the element of partisanship to the post office and the way people think about it in a way that uh, was, I think, very surprising to, to many people. And then, of course, all the events that you mentioned that occurred shortly before the election in 2020. Well, Christopher Shore, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Good to talk to you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Shaw, who's an author, historian, and policy analyst, who is the author of Preserving the People's Post Office, Money, Power, and the People, The America Struggled to Make Banking Democratic, and most recently, First Class, The U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. We're going to take a brief station break and back and we're going to do some more good news, which is that the economy is good, actually. And I would send a message find out if she's talked But the post office has been stolen And the mailbox is locked Oh, mama Can this really be the end To be stuck inside a mobile With the Memphis blues again Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zachary Carter, a writer in residence with the Omidya Network's Reimagining Capitalism Initiative. He spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. He's the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And he has an article at The Atlantic, The Economy is Good, Actually. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zachary Carter. Thanks so much for having me. So you posed the question, Americans living through the best labor market in half a century, pay for low-wage workers is up. Why can't the left take credit? So what is the answer there? Why can't the left take credit? And why can't Biden get a little bit of comfort from it? Yeah, I I mean, I think the short answer is that people are pretty miserable. And so um, politicians and then, uh, you know, leading intellectuals on the left are reluctant to, to go out and say, hello, we are responsible for all of these conditions. Um, but I think ultimately, if you go back a couple of years and look at the policy choices that were facing lawmakers uh, at the outset of the pandemic, uh, the, the sort of menu of options for where the economy would be a couple of years hence uh, was really very grim. And I think uh, particularly when you compare this economic recovery to the economic recovery after the financial crisis of 2008, things this time around have not only gone much better than they did last time, they've gone much better than I think anyone 
uh, studying this economic policy situation uh, had anticipated in, in March of 2000. Uh, you know, the unemployment rate at 4% right now, uh, it took 10 years to get there after the crash in 2008. Uh, we've done it in two years. Uh, you know, inflation has really uh, eaten away at the, the national mood, I think. Uh, but if you imagine this economy with, uh, you know, slightly less severe inflation and uh, a, a significantly higher unemployment rate, I think the national mood would be even worse. So is that to say that this is a rare occasion where the pendulum normally swings in the direction of more tax breaks and wealth for the plutocracy and the workers getting shafted? But in this case, it's a rare occurrence where this is a good economy for workers. Well, it's it's a better economy for workers than I certainly than I anticipated two years ago. I think it's still a little bit short of where the economy was in February of, of 2020. But if you look at where you know the most intense growth in wages is, for instance, it's in the bottom third of the economy. Uh, it's not it's not for high income uh, accounts. So um, inflation is is still a, a persistent problem, and and we shouldn't overstate the you know, the, the, the progressivity of, of the situation, you know, the, the rescue program in, in 2020 was a rescue everybody program. It was rescue big business, rescue small business, uh, and also rescue workers and families with children and also people who can't work. Uh, so the, the, the big difference between this rescue and the, the one in 2008 is that we spent a lot more money rescuing ordinary people, workers and families than we did the last time around. And I think the economic results so far have, as a result, been better for working people and families than they were the last time around. Well, I also have to correct myself in as much as Oxfam had a recent study that found that the 10 richest men in the world, nine of whom are Americans, uh, have doubled their wealth during the pandemic. So income inequality is, is still probably outpacing the uptick in work and choice uh, for working Americans. But you mentioned inflation. Isn't there a real concern that the Fed's going to overreact and raise interest rates successively and that that's going to really hurt this uh, recovery? I, I think there's a general sort of um, misunderstanding, uh, not only among the general public, but among uh, leading economists, that there's sort of a, a Goldilocks solution for the Federal Reserve where they can tame inflation without uh, without in some way impairing the labor market. Um, when, when you study the way price increases actually move through the system and the way interest rates affect price increases, it's pretty clear that the Fed manages inflation essentially by reducing labor income. There's a great um, uh, report by an organization called Employ America that just came out today uh, discussing this exact phenomenon in, in depth. Um, which I recommend to, to all of your listeners. But, but basically, the only way to, for the Fed to bring down inflation through interest rates is to hurt the labor market. So either to create more unemployment or to uh, reduce the growth of wages uh, or some combination of the two. So even if the Fed you know, doesn't cause a full-blown recession and cause economic growth to go negative and uh, the unemployment rate to shoot up to 8 or 9%, uh, anytime you're talking about uh, reducing inflation by raising interest rates, you're talking about uh, reducing paychecks. Well, the real causes of inflation, though, obviously it's misdirected to say it's because of all of this influx of money from the, the stimulus programs. It's energy prices and food prices are really driving it. And you've got things that have, I think are largely beyond the government's control in terms of global 
supply chains, etc. Aren't they the real drivers of inflation? Yeah, I'd say uh, for, for households, the stuff that really matters um, is rent, energy prices, uh, and yeah, then to, to some extent, food. Food in particular is, is sensitive to interest rate policy, by the way, uh, but, but rent, housing rent as well. I, I think that's, that's, the real, that's the real rub here. Um, people sort of have an intuitive belief that too much government and too much spending is, is how you, you get inflation. And, and that's not a totally crazy intuition. There are certainly circumstances in which that can be the case. But in this particular case, you know, we have inflation is a global phenomenon. It's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world. So uh, we know this isn't just a result of you know, one country's uh, you know, ex- excessive spending ways. Um, there's a problem with the global economy, and that problem has been basically described as supply chain bottlenecks. So until you find ways to untangle those knots in the supply chain uh, or to you know, make them irrelevant by reshoring or onshoring jobs uh, and manufacturing stuff, then uh, you know, you're, you're going to have inflation problems, uh, regardless of, of what your, your sort of fiscal and monetary outlook uh, is. And I think it's important to understand as, as well <laughs> that, that the way out of that bottleneck gap is not just a lot of necessarily a lot of tinkering, a lot of investment in the economy, a lot of investment in manufacturing, um, running the economy hot with high levels of aggregate demand is a great way to get people to invest in, in more resiliency and to make those supply chains uh, more durable to, to shocks like what we experienced over the last two years. So the, I think sometimes people get caught up and think that, you know, Keynesian stimulus messages are sort of like a sugar high that feels good now, but you're really going really gonna to pay for it later. And I think in this case in particular, that's backwards. Uh, if, if, you, if you invest the money now to strengthen the economy, to, to deal with these, uh, these supply chain problems, you actually get a stronger economy down the road, uh, the ability to produce more than you could before. So are there any tools that Biden, apart from the fact that there seems to be a PR problem here, that he's not getting credit for a good economy or um, an unusually good economy for working middle-class Americans, but could he do something with executive orders in terms of going after the monopolies, the oil cartels, and particularly the the meatpacking monopoly where you've got this Brazilian and Chinese companies being the dominant of the four or five that are making a fortune, and farmers are getting screwed, by the way, along yeah, I, with consumers. I, I think the anti-monopoly argument on, uh, on inflation is, is really compelling in a couple of respects. Um, I think what Biden can do through anti-monopoly measures is, is a little bit fuzzier. You know, if, if, um, if I could just wave a magic wand and make things happen, I would impose a, a, an excess profit tax on a lot of companies that are uh, engaging in really high markups right now. You know, we're, we're not just seeing prices rise to, to meet costs. We're seeing prices rising significantly ahead of costs in some sectors, um, and particularly in shipping. And, you know, I think a, you know, a higher tax rate on profits over, you know, the rate of profit, you know, a few years ago would be perfectly reasonable. But I think to do that, you would have to go through Congress and you would have to persuade uh a series of Democratic senators who don't seem to like doing anything that undercuts the bottom line for any business uh, to, to sign off on a, a tax increase. That seems unlikely to me. Um, so I think I think the the available mechanisms are basically interest rates at the Fed, um, which would fight 
inflation by uh, lowering household paychecks, and uh, and then an antitrust regime where you start trying to figure out ways to uh, reduce concentration in uh, a lot of these sectors. So a price increase from one company um, that dominates the market doesn't end up being passed through to, to consumers so easily. They have to compete a little more for uh, for the business that they're doing. Well, a little while back, uh, Biden at a CNN town hall meeting addressing the, the rising cost of, of gasoline at the pump suggested that there were some people, he didn't say, didn't name Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, but he in, indicated who he was talking about, <laughs> that he wants to, he wants me to talk to him. So what do you do about these foreign players like the Saudi crown prince, who's close to the Trumps and uh, Kushner, etc.? And you've got Putin as well, who's benefiting from the rising price of gas. Oh, there's certainly a diplomatic um, element to this. You know, there's there's also a uh, you know a climate and environmental uh, element to this. Whenever you're talking about energy, so things get pretty get pretty thorny uh, pretty quickly. But I would also say that you know rising gas prices coming out of the pandemic is something that that I think people did expect. Uh, you know, when the economy shuts down <laughs> and then restarts, uh, energy prices are going to go up. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think that is, a, you know, a particularly mysterious um, situation, and I'm, I'm less inclined to think that it's a, a diplomatic crisis with, um, with the Middle East that's responsible here. Um, although, you know, of course, over the long run, if you want to manage the price of, of energy and oil, you're going to have to be in conversations with people who produce energy and oil. Well, there was an attempt to have a conversation with the board members of the big oil companies yesterday before the House Oversight and Reform Committee, and the oil company representatives simply didn't show up. So <laughs> how do you have a dialogue with them? <laughs> they won't even talk not, to the Congress. It's not easy. But, but you know, in the, in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, a lot of the, the sort of... <laughs> I think it's sometimes referred to as like the golden age of, of uh, macroeconomic policy for the United States after the war, there was a lot of informal kind of uh, price, uh, I won't say price setting, but price influencing through a process that uh, was often referred to as jawboning, where the president of the United States and other uh, you know, political leaders would have conversations with labor unions and with corporate executives and talk about how to uh, you know, find a, a reasonable level for uh, wages and prices that uh, you know was not a formal price control, but uh, you know a, a sort of a gentleman's agreement about how uh, how to proceed in in major industries and major sectors. And that process basically stopped uh, with the outbreak of stagflation in the 1970s and the emergence of Paul Volcker and the Federal Reserve as the the primary tool for fighting inflation. Well, the U.S. inflation rate is slightly higher than Europe's, but the U.S. is enjoying a much stronger growth, is it not? I believe so. I mean, it depends country by country, but overall, the, the jobs recovery in the United States has been has been not only uh, excellent relative to the the 2008 recession, but also excellent relative to other countries in the world. Um, and, and I think I think probably a little bit of the higher inflation rate and also a lot of the uh, lower unemployment rate is is due to the uh, robustness of the response and, and the amount that was targeted uh, towards d- directly towards families. So 
What kind of impact would a war on Europe have on all of this? It's obviously, we've established that Biden's not getting credit for a good economy, an unusually good economy for working and middle-class Americans. And, I mean, obviously the the stock market tanked a while back, a thousand points in a day, with fears of this war. But if it actually happens between Russia and Ukraine, uh, I imagine there'll be quite a lot of economic damage. How, how do you see it? This surely is an impetus on for Biden to try and come up with a diplomatic solution, isn't it? Oh, well, I, I won't claim to be an expert in um, diplomatic relations between uh, Russia, Ukraine, the Crimea, the European Union, and all that. Um, but I will say the war is generally not good for uh, for business in the long run. So, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would say the war in Europe would make all of the economic troubles um, that we're seeing right now much more. Uh, it would it would certainly put put intensifying pressure on, on just about everything. So, just in closing, then, uh, Zachary Carter, what can the Biden administration do to get the credit that's due to them? Uh, and also to warn about, I mean, they, they don't have control over the Fed, obviously, the Fed's independent, but it sounds like there will be an r- interest rate rise in March. I think that's been pretty clearly telegraphed. Is there a strategy ahead of this uh, midterm elections? Because this is about the only thing that he's got going for him, isn't he? Everything else seems to be, I mean, the r- massive Republican voter suppression that's going to make it even harder. I mean, the Democrats, I think, have to get 8% more votes than Republicans to break even now. But then if you add in all the voter suppression, they've got a real uphill climb. So what kind of uh, economic ammunition does he have here to convince the American people that he's the, the right steward of the economy? And frankly, history indicates that usually that's the way it is. When Democrats are in control of the economy, it's better for most Americans. And when Republicans are in control of the economy, it's better for a handful of Americans. I, I, I want to emphasize that Biden is in a, a pretty tricky spot here because anything he actually does to successfully uh, treat inflation will not obviously dramatically improve living standards for people uh, by the time the election rolls around. And as we discussed on, on the show, you know, some of the measures uh, may, may help tame inflation by hurting many people's living standards. So um, it, it's, it's a tricky spot. And I think the pandemic itself is a, is a, a huge driver of public discontent. Um, you know, every time we have one of these, these variant waves, um, people, you know, get another dose of misery. Um, so, and, and those aren't, aren't obviously going to go away. So there are limits to what Biden can do for on, on public opinion here. But I do think um, having the ability to just tell the story about how the inflation happened and what is taking place is something that the Biden administration has and has not pursued particularly aggressively. And it also hasn't taken advantage of those antitrust tools that you were talking about earlier. Those tools, I think, would take a while to generate price effects, but it would give the public a sense that Biden is aware of what is going on and is actually doing something about it. And, uh, and look, it also... Just from a narrative perspective, it gives the president a bad guy. Uh, you know, if you can say, if you can point to some corporations that have raised prices at ridiculous levels, um, you know, that is, uh, that is something that the public responds to. So it becomes a more concrete issue for people rather than a kind of cloudy, abstract thing that they're generally going to hold leaders in, you know, 
responsible for. So I, I do think that both the FTC and the Department of Justice have a lot of antitrust tools available, um, particularly on, on shipping, to some extent on energy, um, to, to, to show that the government is taking action. But, you know, the, the biggest problem for most households is, is rental inflation, is housing policy. Um, so that, that, requir- you know, that is going to be a harder problem to fix with antitrust tools. But, you know, with lumber and, the, the, you know, the various <laughs> almost every sector of the U.S. economy has some sort of concentration issue somewhere. Um, so it, 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 is, it is clearly a, a situation where Biden has has tools available, events that he can hold to take some credit. Um, and he just hasn't done that because he's been negotiating with the Senate for the past year. Well, Zachary Carter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Zachary Carter, who's a writer in residence at the Omidyar Network's Reimagining Capitalism Initiative. He spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. And he's the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And he has an article at The Atlantic, The Economy is Good, Actually. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past I'm